Beethoven Orchestra View. Orchestra View? Where's that? You change, you change four score and seven to to eighty-seven. Oh, that view is tremendous. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Beccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning into episode 67 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. And it's another Jazz Appreciation Month episode. Man, I wish I had kept the notes from the Upper Division History of Jazz class I took at Kent State University because Duke Ellington was on Professor Chaz Baker's Mount Rushmore of Jazz. In fact, Duke's music is so important, he warranted a full box set from this Franklin Mint collection. So... Get ready to hear the most significant composer of the genre in Volume 67, Duke, A Jazz Classic Part 1. And we will once again use the booklet provided in each of these box sets for the intro of each tune. And I know skipping black and tan fantasy might be a sin, but it was really tough to decide on six songs. So, seven songs it is. And we start with... Doing the Voom Voom. Now, it may appear conventional. In fact, it is a stomp of superior quality. Despite further antiphony between Harry Carney's baritone saxophone and Joe Nanton's trombone, a passage from Johnny Hodges, piano little interludes, and a moment of Barney Begard's clarinet, it is dominated by the frequent and authoritative contributions of trumpeter Bubber Miley. When this recording was made, Miley was in his last year with the Ellington Band. It is apparent that the main point of his work is not the strange tonal distortions that he and Nanton produced with the plunger mute, but his melodic strength. Note also the quiet ending, a brave gesture in the 1920s when the strongest suit of jazz was supposed to be that it was very loud. Now, this was recorded January 16th, 1929. <laughs> 
Doing the Voom Voom, written by Duke Ellington and Bubber Miley. Okay, why this record for this episode? Well, the Duke has an entire box set to himself. But really, some of his music has long been on my playlist, whether currently on Spotify or back in my CD and album collection days. I still listen to the seven and a half minute version of Take the A Train featuring Ella Fitzgerald every chance I get. And since we will eventually get around to all four records in this set, I thought I would start at the beginning. A very good place to start indeed. Next up, Old Man Blues is a vigorous up-tempo affair with a pulse articulated more flexibly than that of any of the earlier performances. Again, a concern with texture is apparent. Nanton states the theme while Bagard adds a second, admittedly subsidiary part. And there is an extreme contrast between saxophones and trumpets at the beginning of the ensemble passage that follows. We are led to expect sweet smoothness, but are soon given something more abrasive. This is one of the ways in which good music works, by setting up certain expectations and then doing something else. The interest of Carney's baritone solo is heightened by the prominent piano obligato and Hodges, heard on alto saxophone in early, uh, earlier on this album, plays a soprano sax on this recording. Freddie Jenkins spurts out detached notes in a trumpet solo that seems like the climax, but another peak, a superb ensemble statement of the theme, lies beyond it. In parallel with the earlier ensemble, the saxes begin and the trumpets quickly take over, although there is a brief interruption by a ribald Nanton and jittery Bagard. By now, 1930, it is clear despite the surpassing brilliance of the soloists, that a real composer, not a mere arranger, is in charge of this music. The overall formal strategy of old man blues is too effective for any other explanation to suffice. This was recorded August 26, 1930. Thank you. 
written by Duke Ellington and Irving Mills. Okay, let's learn about the album I chose for this episode. Duke Ellington, Great Jazz Classics. It's on the Franklin Mint Record Society label, number FM Jazz 021. It's the greatest jazz recordings of all time series from the Institute of Jazz Studies official archive collection. It is a four vinyl LP compilation, red vinyl and box box set format. Now this one says its country of origin is Sweden. It depends on what numbers that you're looking at. It was released in 1983 and its genre is jazz. We are listening to sides one and two of record one. The music on those sides were recorded from November of 1927 to May of 1940. We'll hear seven of the 12 songs because I couldn't choose just the normal six. And I'm going to read just the first paragraph of the liner notes from the booklet. Duke Ellington's prominent position in jazz arose from activities on several distinct but intimately related levels. The most public of these was leading a band for more than 50 years, from his teens until just before his death in 1974. Obviously, the countless engagements his band fulfilled across the decades, the concerts, dances, radio broadcasts, and television appearances cannot be detailed here. Like the international tours, the films for which Ellington provided music, the various awards he eventually received, they are all safely chronicled in the encyclopedias of jazz, the volumes of biography. Let's see what value Discogs.com has put on this box set. 
Lowest price at $15, highest at $44.43, with a median at $20. The last time it was sold on Discogs.com was December 17th, 2020. Now, my dad's collection is in good condition. There's not much hiss or crackle, probably because the nice plastic, solid plastic envelopes that they come in are also very, very good protection. The cover is also in very, very good condition, along with the internal booklet, which is so important when I put these episodes together. So I will value my dad's box set at $12. Let's move on. Creole Love Call demonstrates Ellington's ability to renew himself on old material. Although the soloists occupy most of the space, the way they are deployed clearly points to the one who sees the piece as a whole. In place of Adelaide Hall's instrumental vocalizing in the more famous 1927 recording Creole Love Call, we have a version that is, to borrow a Jimmy Lunsford title of 10 years later, strictly instrumental. It involves extremes of contrast that scarcely any other jazz ensembles of that time could have incorporated into music without stylistic disruption. Notice the difference in sound between Arthur Wetzel's and Cootie Williams' trumpeting, and more closely juxtaposed between Nanton's slide and Juan Tizol's valve trombone playing. By now, the band has its own tradition, and Williams and Bagard repeat the solos earlier recorded by Miley and Rudy Jackson. But Williams plays with a suppressed ferocity that quite alters the meaning of Miley's notes, and Bagard later goes into a dialogue with the ensemble, during which he does things that Jackson could not have attempted. This was recorded February 11th, 1932. <laughs>
There is Creole Love Call, written by Duke Ellington, Bubber Miley, and Rudy Jackson, with original music written by King Oliver. Okay, let's learn a little about this episode's featured artist. And this is combined from information at songhall.org and biography.com. An originator of big band jazz, Duke Ellington was an American composer, pianist, and band leader who composed thousands of scores over his 50-year career. Born on April 29, 1899, Ellington was raised by two talented musical parents in a middle-class neighborhood of Washington, D.C. At the age of seven, he began studying piano and earned the nickname Duke for his gentlemanly ways. Inspired by his job as a soda jerk, he wrote his first composition, Soda Fountain Rag, at the age of 15. Despite being awarded an art scholarship to the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York, Ellington followed his passion for ragtime and began to play professionally at age 17. In the 1920s, Ellington performed in Broadway nightclubs as the band leader of a sextet, a group which in time grew to a 10-piece ensemble. Ellington sought out musicians with unique playing styles, such as Bubber Miley, who used a plunger to make the wah-wah sound, and Joe, and Joe Nanton, who gave the world his trombone growl. At various times, his ensemble included the trumpeter Cootie Williams, cornetist Rex Stewart, and alto saxophonist Johnny Hodges. Ellington made hundreds of recordings with his bands, appeared in films and on radio, and toured Europe on two occasions in the 1930s. In 1927, Ellington's band was hired to play regularly at the Cotton Club, where he stayed for five years. Cotton Club performances were broadcast almost nightly, and by 1930, Ellington and his band were famous. And even as early as this, Ellington was beginning to be recognized as an important, serious composer. Ellington's fame rose to the rafters in the 1940s when he composed several masterworks, including Concerto for Cootie, Cottontail, and Coco. Some of his most popular songs included It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing, Sophisticated Lady, Prelude to a Kiss, Solitude, and Satin Doll. Perhaps Ellington's most famous jazz tune was Take the A-Train, which was composed by Billy Strayhorn and recorded for commercial purposes on February 15, 1941. Take the A-Train, the A, referring to a subway line in New York City, took the place of Ellington's previous signature tune, Pepia, I'm sorry, Sepia Panorama. It was Ellington's sense of musical drama that made him stand out. His blend of melodies, rhythms, and subtle sonic movements gave audiences a new experience, complex yet accessible jazz that made the heart swing. Ellington's autobiography, Music is My Mistress, was published in 1973. Ellington earned 12 Grammy Awards from 1959 to 2009 while he was alive. On May 24, 1974, at the age of 75, Ellington died of lung cancer and pneumonia. His last words were, Music is how I live, why I live, and how I will be remembered. More than 12,000 people attended his funeral. 
He was buried in Woodland Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York City. There is no way I could do his life justice in the short time we have together each week, so I'm not even going to try. Another demonstration of the band's growing, growing capabilities is the song Slippery Horn, based on the chords of Tiger Rag. It shows horn fluent and well balanced the tr- how fluent and well balanced the trombone section of Nanton Tazal and Lawrence Brown had become. There is fine Bagard too, at once agitated and understated. Bagard is accompanied mainly by the trombones, and when Brown solos, note the antiphonal relation between his phrases and those of the saxes. Incidentally, uh, this performance is slower than the more familiar one recorded the following year. And this one was recorded May 18, 1932. <laughs>
there is Slippery Horn, composed by Ellington. Let's go right into our bonus cut for this episode. In 1933, Ellington visited Britain for the first time and, like Louis Armstrong the year before, was surprised at the knowledge of his work that the British had acquired. Hyde Park is the best track from this one London recording session, and it is mainly a sequence of solos. Williams is excellent, and there are further indication of indications of Carney's growing and pioneering mastery of the baritone sax. As on Old Man Blues, Ellington chimes in tellingly behind Carney. Begard starts almost casually and receives interesting support from the ensemble, which drops out during the solo by Hodges, another Ellingtonian who had advanced considerably. Nanton is heard from, too, with Begard adding a subsidiary part. Hyde Park was recorded July 13, 
And there is Hyde Park, written by Duke Ellington. Time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with you having to get lucky sometimes, no matter how good you are. In September 1927, King Oliver turned down a regular booking for his group as the house band at Harlem's The Cotton Club. The offer passed to Ellington after Jimmy McHugh suggested him, and Mills arranged an audition. Ellington had to increase from a 6 to 11-piece group to meet the requirements of the Cotton Club's management for the audition, and the engagement finally began on December 4th. With a weekly radio broadcast, the Cotton Club's exclusively white and wealthy clientele poured in nightly to see them. At the Cotton Club, Ellington's group performed all the music for the reviews, which mixed comedy, dance numbers, vaudeville, burlesque, music, and illicit alcohol. The musical numbers were composed by Jimmy McHugh and the lyrics by Dorothy Fields, later Harold Arlen and Ted Kohler, with some Ellington originals mixed in. Weekly radio broadcasts from the club gave Ellington national exposure. And if you ever get a chance to see the movie Cotton Club, please do. Great acting performance by Richard Gere and others, and a great dancing performance by the late, great Gregory Hines. Now, speaking of Harlem... The next two recordings must represent the most underrated phases of Ellington's work. The glory of his 1940 band, rightly considered a peak, perhaps even the highest peak of his output, has overshadowed what led up to it. However, the band of the late 1950s had achievements of its own, possibly more numerous than those of the 1940 group, and the opening and closing sequences of Harmony in Harlem show how each constituent had become sensitively adjusted to the others. The power and refinement of this playing marked a new level in the performance of jazz by a large ensemble. Hodges on soprano and Williams each play their own ideas, each makes a personal statement, yet they act as two of the composer's voices because of the particular ways they are embedded in the ensemble. Harmony in Harlem was recorded September 20th, 1937.
Harmony in Harlem, written by Duke Ellington, Johnny Hodges, and Irving Mills. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Playing these box sets are definitely bringing back some great memories of how my dad and I had similar tastes in music. Now, while he could care less who Jimmy Page and Robert Plant were, he really enjoyed the fact I also liked a lot of the same music he did. And we were able to talk about that older music together quite frequently. One of those other musical connections is the trumpet that both he and I played in our high school bands. So we were always doing this, bragging in brass might be taken as the brass section's response to that virtuosic outburst from the saxophones on Live and Love Tonight. That's a song we did not hear on this episode. It is another of Duke Ellington's many variations on the chord sequence of Tiger Rag, a favorite among jazz musicians of that period. The trombones vie with the trumpets in mobility, and there are fine passages by Rex Stewart on cornet, Brown, and Williams. This was recorded February 25th, 
Dragon in Brass, yet another Ellington composition. And there you have more celebration of Jazz Appreciation Month with selections from one record from one box set dedicated to one prolific songwriter. So thanks for tuning into Volume 67, Duke, a Jazz Classic Part 1, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to SpinningMyDad'sVinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops as we continue Jazz Appreciation Month for Volume 68, King Morton. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>